Well, we're talking about angels. We started a series on angels uh, several weeks ago, so I'll invite you to turn to two openings of Scripture. We're using as a text Scripture Hebrews chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, but then we're going to immediately be going to 2 Kings chapter 2 in the Old Testament. So if you want to find both of those places, you'll kind of get a head start. We've uh, identified a little bit about the angels. One of the things that uh, that's, uh, I think is significant, that when Paul wrote to the Jews, now, and, and the, the, the letter that was written to the Hebrews, of course, I believe Paul was the author of that, as has been well documented. Um, uh, nevertheless, um, uh, the fact that the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to begin talking about Jesus being greater than the angels more than any other thing. He talked about him being greater than Moses, talked about him being greater than Abraham, talked about him being greater than the law, talked about him being greater than any of the other dispensations, any of the prophets and so forth. But he starts off talking about Jesus being better than the angels, better being meaning more excellent, higher than, with a more prominent place as far as God was concerned. Now, here's why that's significant, at least to me. Gentiles don't know anything about angels. They don't have any history with God. They don't have any history with angels. They don't have any history with the supernatural. The Jews are the only ones that have a history with God and, and therefore a history with the supernatural. They're the only ones that have experienced any supernatural deliverance, any supernatural activity on their behalf as far as deliverance or, or salvation or, or anything, really. So when Paul starts writing by the Holy Ghost, and, and please notice that. I keep emphasizing that. He's inspired by the Holy Ghost to start here, to tell them, to tell the ones that know about angels, to know about their history with angels, to know about their history of God's deliverance, to start off saying, Jesus is greater than the angels. That's significant. It's significant because God's trying to point out that Jesus is above everything to people, the only people on the earth that have ever known anything about God, which would be the Jewish nation. So it says, we won't uh, go through all the scriptures in uh, in chapter 1. There are a lot of them relative to the angels. But we'll just uh, go with 13 and 14, chapter uh, chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, where Paul concludes what was divided as into chapter 1. He said, but to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Now, folks, let me let me caution you about something here. Paul is speaking in one sense. Let me let me say it like this. Paul is speaking in one sense in a derogatory manner concerning the angels. He's kind of putting the angels down like, what are the angels compared to Jesus? And he's right. There is no comparison between the angels and Jesus. Jesus is the creator of the angels. So there's no comparison. They're really not in the same class. But right on the other hand, we need to understand that doesn't mean the angels are nothing. The Bible talks about the angels who excel in strength. The Bible talks about the angels who are mighty to save and to deliver. And we'll see some things. We'll read some examples tonight about God's deliverance through angels. So... There's two sides of this. It's just like a coin has a, has a heads and a tails. The head side is Jesus. Jesus is far above the angels. No angel can even come close to being compared or to being thought of in Jesus' category. Now, folks, with that in mind, Lucifer was an angel. So don't put Jesus and the devil on the same par. 
Don't talk about Jesus and, and Satan, Lucifer, who then became Satan. Don't talk about them as their equal partner or equal uh, adversaries. They're not. One is the creator. The other is the created being. And that's the point that we need to keep in, in our mind first and foremost. But right on the other hand, angels are some big, big, bad dudes. They excel in strength. They're God's ministers. Well, would God put weaklings out there? But notice what it says. Jesus is the head of all things. No angel can can match up with Jesus in any way whatsoever. But here's who the angels are. Verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits? Are they not all ministering spirits? Servants. Jesus is the son. Angels are the servants. Well, servants serve, don't they? If you hire a servant in your house or a servant for a party, you expect those servants to serve. But they are, their, their service is very specifically defined, is it not? If you hire caterers and waiters for a party you're having in, in your backyard, they're hired for a certain period of time to do a specific job. You don't own them. You can't tell them what to do with their lives. You just tell them how to handle themselves at the party and what you want to do to serve the, the food or drinks or whatever it is, right? Well, in that same way, servants, God's ministering spirits who are servants, have a specific and defined job. Now, what is that job specifically defined as? It's defined as being in service to those who shall be heirs of salvation. Verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits? Servants sent forth to minister for those who shall be heirs of salvation. I said two because I wanted you to make the connection between angels are for your benefit. Not just for God's benefit. God put man on the earth and gave him dominion. Therefore, he gave man servants, spiritual servants called angels for whom these servants will serve or minister for. And notice it calls them heirs of salvation. Galatians 3.20, I think it says, it says, and if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs of heirs of the promise? That's 3.29, Galatians 3.29. Well, if you're heirs of the promise, that's got to be heirs of salvation because salvation was what was promised, right? So this is saying that angels are servants of men. Let me get that across. Angels are servants of men. Now, once you say that, everybody's mind starts going in different directions and say, well, what can I get them to do? I've got some stuff I need done. And I'm not talking about mowing the lawn. We've got bills that need to be paid. We've got, we've got healing that needs to be received. We've got deliverance and any number of things, situations that need to be fixed. I need to put my servants to work. How did I do that? Well, let's look at back at the Bible, what the Bible tells us about these ministering servants, or these uh, these angels who are ministers or servants. Turn back with me to 2 Kings chapter 2. Now, folks, the things of God don't change. The dispensations of God do, but God doesn't change. In other words, God's the same in the Old Testament as he is in the New Testament. Angels would be the same in the Old Testament as they would be in the New Testament. Why? Because God gave man dominion in the beginning in Genesis chapter 1. So therefore, angels have been intended to be the servants for those who shall be the heirs of salvation 
from the time that Adam was created. Now, I wish, (laughs) I wish we had tapes of God talking with Adam in the cool of the day. Wouldn't that be some cool information to have? I wonder if he told him about angels. I wonder if he told him. Now, when you need spiritual things done, you have servants. He certainly told us about it. I wonder if he told him. If so, wouldn't it be great to find out what he told him and how? Wouldn't it be great to hear from God face to face on that? Well, we think that that would be different from what the Bible tells us, but the Bible gives us the same information that God would have given Adam or anybody else that he talked to face to face. So let's look at what the Bible says about the Old Testament, how angels operated in the Old Testament, and we can see principles that may be adapted a little bit with the New Covenant, but principles of what angels do and how they do it. Second Kings chapter 2. Let me turn there real quick. We'll start reading in verse 1. And it came to pass when the Lord would take Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind that Elijah went with Elisha to Gilgal. Now, we could go into chapter 1 and talk about where the angel of the Lord told Elijah certain things. But but we don't know conclusively that that would be an angel. Most probably that's Jesus. Where the Bible talks about in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord, most times it seems... And we don't know for sure. There may be times that we're wrong, that we make the assumption we're wrong. But most times it seems that it's talking about Jesus. Because, for example, it says uh, the angel of the Lord told Elijah something in verse in uh, chapter 1. And then he turned around and said, go tell your master the Lord said. Well, which was it, the angel or the Lord? We conclude, and again, it's an assumption that most times in the Old Testament where angel of the Lord, the phrase angel of the Lord is used, is talking about Jesus rather than an angel. So let's stick with the ones that we know. There may be others that we could include in this, but the, we'll get enough information from the ones that we know. Second Kings chapter 2. It came to pass when the Lord would take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind that Elijah went with Elisha, that's his servant. You remember he's the one that uh, the Lord told to anoint as prophet in his room to take over in his uh, when he goes off the scene. He went with Elisha unto Gilgal, and Elijah said unto Elisha, Tarry here, I pray thee, for the Lord has sent me to Bethel. And Elisha said unto him, As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. Now, that's the strongest oath you could give. As truly as God is alive, I'm not going anywhere. I'm sticking with you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophet that were at Bethel came forth to Elisha and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today? So the prophets, the sons of the prophets, knew what was going on. They knew today was the day that the Lord was going to take him. And they're asking Elisha, Do you know that too? Now, folks, I want you to understand something. Elisha, nobody knew that Elisha had been anointed by Elijah to stand in his place when it was over. So the sons of the prophets are considered to be on a higher level than Elisha is. The sons of the prophets are those that are considered to be prophets, or at least prophets in training. Now, I don't know what a school of the prophets would look like, and everything I've ever seen anybody do nowadays that they call school of the prophets is the biggest bunch of junk I've ever seen in my life. So I don't know what it would be, but apparently they had something like this. Elisha or Elijah knew what was going on in that regard, and so he he operated thusly. But Elisha is considered to be the one that holds Elijah's coat. He's the one carrying the suitcases. He's not considered to be one of the prophets or the sons of the prophets. He's not considered to be the one taken over. The sons of the prophets are the ones that are going to step into a place 
whatever place that is that God has for them. But nobody's expecting that of Elisha. So they ask him, do you know that today is the day that Elijah's going home? Why would they ask that if they expected him to have the same revelation that they have? Do you see this? So we'll pick up in verse, well, again, verse 3. And the sons of the prophet that were at Bethel came forth to Elisha and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today? And he said, Yea, I know it. Hold ye your peace. And Elijah said unto him, Elisha, tarry here. Wait here. Stay here in Bethel. I pray thee, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he said, As the Lord liveth and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. So they came to Jericho. As it looks like this guy is trying to shake Elisha off. I mean, we know that this is not where the Lord finally gets to. Why didn't Elijah just take a straight line rather than go from here to here to here and someplace else? It looks like he's trying to get rid of Elijah, or at least he's testing Elisha, or at least he's testing him to see if he'll leave. Sometimes adversity comes your way for God to see if you've got what it takes to make it. So Elijah said, as thy soul liveth, as the Lord liveth, and thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. So they came to Jericho. And the sons of the prophet that were at Jericho came to Elisha and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today? And he answered, Yea, I know it. Hold you your peace. They seem to think they've got information that he doesn't have. Verse 6, And Elijah said unto him, Terry, I pray thee here. Stay in Jericho. For the Lord has sent me to Jordan. And he said, As the Lord liveth and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. And they too went on. And fifty of the sons of the prophets went and stood to view afar off, and they too stood by Jordan. That's the Jordan River. And Elijah took his mantle. That's the coat, the, the animal skin that he had that he wore as a, as a covering. And Elijah took his mantle and wrapped it together and smote the waters, and they were divided hither and thither so that the two went over on dry ground. Now, you remember, let me, let me take a little side journey here. You remember in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it says of uh, uh, manifestations of the Spirit, Paul gives a list of nine different manifestations of the Spirit. He said there are diversities of operations, um, but it's the same Spirit. He said there are diversities of, or differences of administrations, but the same Lord, and there are diversities of operations, but it's the same God which worketh all in all. I think I said operations twice, did I? There are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. Diversities of administrations, but the same Lord. Diversities of operations, but it's the same God that worketh all in all. Gifts seem to belong to the spirit. Administrations seem to belong to Jesus. But operations seem to belong to God. But they all work. Now, diversity of operations means things will bring the same results in different ways sometimes. Here's a good example of that. You remember when Moses and the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea, Moses didn't slap the water. He stood there and he struck out, held out his rod and the waters parted and everybody went over on dry ground. Here, Elijah and Elisha go on dry ground, but he takes his mantle and wraps it up into some kind of circular thing, I guess, and he starts hitting step by step by step. And everywhere he hits, the water recedes and they go over on dry ground. Both situations result in going over on dry ground, but they operated in different ways. Sometimes God does things differently. 
don't ever let yourself get in, the, in a pattern of, well, God did this one way before, so this is the way it's always going to work. God sometimes does things in different ways. That's why you have to be sensitive to spirits to see what God wants to do now. God wants things to be fresh today. He didn't want you to live on yesterday's bread. That's why manna didn't last overnight. Get fresh manna. Well, it goes on to say, verse 9, And it came to pass when they were gone over that Elijah said unto Elisha, Ask what I shall do for thee before I be taken away from thee. Now, this is the first thing that Elijah has said to him about, I'm going. But he assumes, he takes for granted that Elisha knows. He has more confidence in Elisha, in Elisha, than the sons of the prophet did. So he says, you've stuck with me. You've been faithful. Now ask what you want. And Elisha said, I pray thee, let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. Now, the spirit that he's talking about, he's not talking about Elijah as as an individual. He's talking about the spirit of God that's on Elijah to stand in the office of the prophet. And Elijah answers and says, thou hast asked a hard thing. Well, why is it a hard thing? Is that hard for God? That's not hard for God. It's It's going to be hard for him. Elisha, you don't know what you've asked for. That's going to be tough. But he does fulfill it. Elisha winds up being a prophet in Elijah's place or taking his place. Uh, let me let me say this too. Uh, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this and get sidetracked, but a lot of times people, when a, a great man of God goes off the scene, people wonder who's going to take their place, who's going to pick up their mantle. It doesn't work that way today. It worked that way with Israel because Israel always needed a prophet. They needed a spokesman from God. But it doesn't work that way today. You've seen younger ministers try to take over for their fathers. That rarely works. You see younger ministers sometimes try to be their fathers in the pulpit. That never works. The only time that I've ever seen it work is when somebody stands up and says, I'm not my dad, I'm just going to be me, and then it works. Joel Osteen's a good example of that. He stood up and said, I'll never be able to fill my dad's shoes. I'm just going to be myself, and God's used that. But in a lot of ways, he can't hold a candle to his dad, John Osteen. But God's using him in different ways than he used his dad. Thank God God can use us all in, with whatever we've got. Amen? So, it says, you have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if, it's conditional, if you see me when I am taken from thee, it shall be so. Under thee, but if not, it shall be not, it shall not be so. In other words, you've stuck with me up to now, but you've still got to hang on to the end. And it came to pass as they still went on and talked. Oh, I'd love the tapes of that. As they still went on and talked, that behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire and parted them both. That means they separated them, came right down and separated them, got right down in between them. I guess there's something they saw coming from the from the front, and it just came down, and these things are going, and Elijah has to step off to the side, or Elisha steps out of the way, or maybe both of them, and here this thing stops. This stuff sounds like fairy tales, doesn't it? And behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire and parted them both asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried. Now notice what Elisha saw. Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. Now, the word horseman means driver. It means the ones controlling the horses. Now, the previous verse didn't say anything except the chariots and the horses, and both of those are fire. 
Elisha says, I saw the chariots and the guy that's riding the horses or driving the horses, controlling the horses in the chariot. Now, who was that? Who was the horseman of the chariot? Psalm 73, verse 24 says, Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me into glory. How does that work? Well, do you remember in... Uh, uh, hold your finger here. We're coming back to Second Kings. Maybe it would be good for you to turn with me over to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16 is the story of the rich man and Lazarus, where Jesus gives us some tremendous insight into the spirit realm and how things existed in his day, meaning the day prior to the resurrection. We'll start in verse 19. It says, There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. Thou wilt guide me with thy counsel and afterward receive me to glory. How are we received into glory? Well, Lazarus was taken by the angels. Notice in verse 9, it says, Jesus is talking, he says, and I say unto you, this is a real difficult scripture for a lot of people, but it's, it's simple if you understand the principle. And I say unto you, make to yourself friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when you fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. Now, who's he talking about friends? He's talking about the use of money. The unrighteous mammon that he's talking about is the use of money. He's talking about the use of your money. He said there's different ways you can use your money. He's encouraging you to use your money in a very specific way. He's encouraging you to use your money for eternity. So he says, make to yourself friends out of the righteous of the unrighteous mammon. So that when you fail, that means when you died physically, when your life is over here on the earth, they may receive you into their habitations. Now, who is the they referring to? Well, the only people that have been referred to up to this point have been friends. Well, what friends are going to receive you into everlasting habitations? Does grandpa, is grandpa that went to heaven before you, is he responsible for getting you to heaven? That's not how it works. We see in, uh, over here in, uh, further on in the chapter, what is it, verse uh, 22, where the angels carried Lazarus into Abraham's bosom? Well, we'd have to say that the angels received him and him into everlasting habitations. The friends is talking about angels. It's talking about you can use your money to put angels to work so that they'll provide a place for you in heaven. Now, providing a place does not mean they're, they assure your salvation. It means they're the ones that get you from here to heaven. They're the ones that do the transporting. Now, Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Well, how do you get from here to there? Apparently, the angels do it. Well, how long does that take? Is it a long trip? It may be instantaneous, folks, but it's still the work of the angels. Now, think about what that means. God cares about his people so much that he puts angels in charge 
of getting you from here to there. That's a pretty big assignment for the angels. Because you're the only thing that God's ever cared about. You're what he planned for before he made any of the universe. And he entrusts that to the angels to bring you into his presence. Okay, back to Second Kings. Skip with me over to, um, uh, well, we won't, we won't take time to read the rest of the story. You know how that Elijah took up, a, or Elisha took up Elijah's mantle, and he hit the water of the Jordan River back and forth, just like Elijah did, and it parted for him too. During Elijah's lifetime, he did exactly twice as many miracles that are recorded in the Bible as um, Elijah did. So he got the double portion, just like he asked for. Second Kings chapter 6. We've looked at this before, but I think it bears repetition. Beginning in verse 8, Then the king of Syria warred against Israel and took counsel with his servants, saying, In such and such a place shall be my camp. And the man of God sent unto the king of Israel, saying, Beware that thou pass not such a place, for thither the Syrians are come down. And the king of Israel sent to the place which the man of God told him and warned him of and saved himself there not once or twice. In other words, Elijah, or Elisha, excuse me. I get these guys mixed up sometimes when I'm talking. Elisha warned Israel, the king of Israel, about the king of Syria's plans to ambush him. And the king of Israel, therefore, set a counter-ambush and did some damage against the Syrians. And this happened over and over and over again. And as a result, the king of Syria says, we've got a problem. Somebody is a spy. And one of the people said, there's not a spy, there's a prophet named Elisha. Now, folks, we've let me let me make a couple of comments about his. Hold your finger here, but turn back to chapter 5. It talks about the story of Naaman. Naaman was a captain of the host of the king of Syria. Same guy. He was a great man with his master and honorable, but he had leprosy. And one of the little servant girls that had been taken captive, she was a little Jewish servant girl that had been taken captive by the Syrians. She worked in his house and she said, if you were over where the prophet Elijah or Elisha is, he would heal you of the leprosy. Now notice verse 5, after Naaman then tells the king of Syria about it, because they're close buddies, you know, he's one of his captains. He goes to the king of Syria. Notice the king of Syria said, Go to, go, and I will send a letter unto the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand pieces of gold and ten changes of raiment. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, Now when this letter is come unto thee, behold, I have sent Naaman my servant to thee, that thou mayest recover him of his leprosy. King of Israel freaks out. He says, What am I supposed to do this? This is a plan of war. This guy's just trying to trick me because I can't heal leprosy. And Elisha, somebody tells about Elisha. He goes over to Elisha. Elisha tells Naaman, go dip seven times in the river Jordan. You'll come again clean. Naaman doesn't like that. He's a big, important guy. He expects it to work the way that he thinks it ought to work. And that is for Elisha to at least come out and strike his hand over the place where the leprosy is and heal him. But finally, the servants convince him, look, Naaman, what's it going to hurt? If he told you to do something hard, you'd do that. Let's just give it a shot. So he dips in the Jordan River seven times, comes out, and he's clean of his leprosy. Now he doesn't care how it worked. He's just happy to get it. Well, don't you think the king of Syria would know that? Don't you think Naaman would go back and tell the king of Syria, look, I'm clean of my leprosy? Don't you think he'd tell him the story about Elisha the prophet? 
Yeah, there's some wild man that wouldn't even come outside the house. He just said, go dip in the Jordan River seven times. Why is the king of Syria surprised about this? He knows Elisha's there. He knows the supernatural power that Elisha's already shown unto his captain Naaman. But the king of Assyria is upset. Back to chapter 6. He's upset because he thinks there's a spy. Somebody says, no, no, no. Remember the prophet Elijah. Elisha over there. He's telling the king of Israel everything that you speak in your bed chamber, in your bedchamber, in your bedroom. He knows your secret thoughts. So the king of Syria comes up with a great plan. We're going to go catch him. The ambush for the children of Israel, the army of Israel didn't work, but we'll set an ambush for the guy that knows ahead of time. So they do. They get in place. Verse 15, And when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, a host compassed the city, both with horses and chariots. And his servant said unto him, Alas, master, how shall we do? In other words, what are we going to do now? Elisha, we are in big trouble. And he answered, fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. Now, now, we don't know that Elisha saw anything, but we know that he knew something. And I say that for your benefit, because you don't have to see something to know something. You can know from what the Bible says about the angels that are ministering spirits sent forth to minister for you because you're an heir of salvation without ever having to see one. So he answered and said, Fear not, there's more that are with us than are with them. And Elisha prayed, verse 17, and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. Well, what did he see? And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire. Notice where it says they were. It does not say they were around around Samaria. It doesn't say they were around the, the Syrian army. It says they were round about Elisha. That means Gehazi is right in the middle of this circle. So he speaks, Lord, strike him with blindness. And there was some kind of blindness, some kind of flashing light, flash of light that took place. And now all the Syrian army is blinded. They don't know what to do. They don't know where they are. Elisha goes out and speaks to him. They said, we're here for the servant or the prophet Elisha. He says, oh, I know where he is. Follow me. Takes him to the king of Israel. King of Israel says, what do I do? Do I kill him? And the Lord says, don't kill him. Why would you kill somebody that you haven't captured? This is not my doing, not your doing. Feed them. So they fed them, gave them plenty of water. They went back to the king of Syria, and that made peace. But another king, apparently another king rises up in Syria. Notice in verse 24. And it came to pass after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered all his hosts and went up and besieged Samaria. Now, folks, can I ask you a question? How smart do you have to be to keep fighting people that have got angels helping them? Prophets that can see ahead of time and blindness, flashing lies. I have to believe that's the angels at work. I mean, otherwise, what are the angels doing there? Why would he need the angels if God's doing it apart from or separate from the angels? I have to believe that was the work of the angels. What did they do? Maybe they flashed their shields just right in the sun and blinded everybody. I don't know. But it had to be the angels working some way or another. But here comes another king. I'll be able to do it. Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered his host and went up and besieged Samaria. 
And there was a great famine in Samaria, and behold, they besieged it until an ass's head was sold for fourscore pieces of silver and the fourth part of a calf of dove's dung for five pieces of silver. In other words, there's no food in the, the least scrap of anything that would be considered edible. People are buying it for everything they've got. And as the king of Israel was passing by upon the wall, there cried a woman unto him, saying, Help, my lord, O king. And he said, If the Lord does not help thee, whence or how can I help you? Out of the barn floor or out of the wine press? In other words, he's saying, You think I've got food set aside? I can't do anything. But what aileth thee? And she answered, This woman said unto me, Give thy son that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and did eat him. And I said unto her on the next day, Give thy son that we may eat him. And she's hid her son. The folks... Can it get any worse than that? Mothers making deals for boiling and eating their kids. That seems to me to be about the bottom of the barrel. So the king, when he heard this, he rent his clothes. And he said, verse 31, God do so so to me and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, shall stand on him this day. I know what how to fix this problem. I'll kill Elisha. What's he got to do with anything? It's the king of Syria that's surrounding you, not Elisha. (laughs) Isn't this the way it works? Same king of Israel has been saved. His bacon has been saved time after time after time after time from the king of Syria. But now they're in tough spots and the problem is Elisha all of a sudden. So, then Elisha said, the word starts going. They sent a man to Elisha, a messenger, and so forth. Chapter 7, verse 1, Then Elisha said, Hear ye the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, Tomorrow about this time shall a measure of fine flour be sold for a shekel. A measure is a big amount. A shekel is a penny, or the equivalent of a penny in our currency. And two measures of barley, that's a lot, for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. In other words, I'll turn your famine into abundance overnight. I, I, I personally like this story. The, then a Lord on whose hand the king leaned, in other words, one of the king's advisors, answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, might this thing be? In other words, he's saying, this is crazy. This isn't possible. This is not possible if there were even windows in heaven. You always get some doubters no matter what. God's word will promise somebody something. You'll have somebody say, no, that can't be right. What can it hurt to believe? How can it ever hurt to believe good news? But some people bless their hearts. I've heard people say this where, where healing is concerned. Well, you don't want to raise people's hopes. Are you serious? Somebody's been diagnosed as something critical or terminal, and you don't want to raise their hopes? No, let's depress them. That's what they need. That'll help them. People are nuts. That's why God sent Jesus. Well, apparently this guy doesn't know anything about the windows of heaven because there are two places in the Bible where it talks about windows in heaven. One is in Genesis chapter 6 where it says God opened the windows of heaven and the earth flooded 40 days and 40 nights. It rained and the flood took place. So those windows must be pretty big. The second time is in Malachi chapter 3 where it says if God can just find a tither, he'll open those windows of heaven unto him. 
and he'll pour him out a blessing that there's not room enough to receive. So that must be a good size window too. Verse 3, and there were four leprous men at the entering of the gate. And they said one to another, why sit here? we here while, until we die? If we say we will enter into the city, then the famine is in the city. In other words, why go in there? They don't have any food. We'll die in there. And if we sit still here, we die also. Now, therefore, come and let us fall into the host of the Syrians, if they shall save us alive. Now, these are lepers. Nobody cares about lepers. Why are the Syrians going to care about lepers? But this is their only chance. They say, well, let's go to the the Syrians. If they save us alive, we'll live. And if they kill us, we'll die. We're going to die anyway. What do we got to lose, in other words? And they rose up in the twilight to go into the camp of the Syrians. And when they were come to the uttermost part of the camp of Syria, behold, there was no man there. Now, the twilight means early evening. It's just starting to get dark. So by the time they get there, it's dark, I guess. For the Lord had made the host of the Syrians to hear. Please notice this. To hear a host of the Syrians. Had ma- I'm sorry. The, had, the Lord had made the host of the Syrians to hear a noise of chariots and noise of horses. Even the noise of a great host. And they said one to another. Lo, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. So stop and think about what they heard. They heard a great host and they say is the king of Israel. That's one army. And they've hired the kings of the Hittites. I don't know how many kings of Hittites there are, but that's got to be more than one to be kings, plural. So that's at least three armies now, Israel's army plus the two or more Hittite armies, plus the Egyptians, that's at least four enemy armies that they heard a sound of or what they attributed to the sound that they heard. Where'd they hear that? You know the rest of the story. The lepers get in there and they find nobody's there. Plenty of food. They eat and they drink. They start gathering stuff up. They start burying gold and silver. They start trying to create their own treasure trove. And then finally they say, look, this isn't right. We got to go tell Israel about this. So they do. They go and tell Israel about it. And Israel comes out. First of all, they didn't believe them. But then they come out. What do we got to lose? They come out. They find that it's just the way that they said. And it was such a stampede going out of the gates of the city that the advisor that said, if there were windows of heaven, how could this work? He got stampeded and was killed and didn't see it for himself. Just like Elisha said. Now, what does this have to do with angels? Notice it said they heard the host. It's at least four armies, maybe more. Or what they attributed four armies. The king of Israel is one, kings of the Hittites has got to be at least two or more, plus the king of the Egyptians. They said, we heard a sound that that would be uh, concurrent with or representative of. What does that have to do with anything? Turn with me over to First Chronicles chapter 14. First Chronicles chapter 14. David is the king of Israel. We'll start in verse 8, and it said, When the, the Philistines heard that David was anointed king over all Israel, all the Philistines went up to seek David, and David heard of it and went out against them. I like this guy. He finds out everybody wants to fight him. He goes, finds them. He's not running away. He's not trying to find somebody else. He's not like Saul looking for somebody to go against Goliath. He goes out himself. Which, by the way, as long as David went out to war, 
he was okay. It's when he stopped going out to war, that's when he stayed home and saw Bathsheba, got in trouble. And the Philistines came and spread themselves in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of God, saying, I love this about this guy. Here's a fight. Here are armies facing him. And he asked God, should I fight them? It's up to you. I'm ready to fight. I'm prepared. Say the word, we'll go. But you tell us, do we fight or do we hold back? So he inquired of the Lord, shall I go up against the Philistines? And wilt thou deliver them into mine hand? And the Lord said unto him, go up, for I will deliver them into thine hand. So they came up to someplace, Baalpurism, I guess. And David smote them there. Then David said, God has broken in upon mine enemies by mine hand like the breaking forth of waters. Therefore, they called the name of that place, whatever that name is. And when they had left their gods there, in other words, they went running away. What happened is David smote them. He killed some of them, but some of them got away. And when they left, they left their gods there, their idols and all that kind of stuff. It said when they left their gods there, David gave a commandment and they were burned with fire. He burned all the idols. And the Philistines yet again spread themselves abroad in the valley. In other words, the ones that got away, they regrouped, and now they're entrenched. Therefore, David inquired again of the Lord, verse 14, And God said unto them, unto him, Go not up after them. Turn away from them and come upon them over against the mulberry trees. Now, what he's saying is, last time I told you to go right at them and defeat them. And he won. He achieved a great battle. This time he says, No, don't go right at them. Don't go head into them. What I want you to do is I want you to turn away and I want you to go over to where the mulberry trees are. Apparently there was a little oasis or something over there where he knew that they, that he could be, uh, where he could make a stand so that they would come after him. Now notice what God said. Go over again. Don't go against them, but turn from them and come over upon them over against the mulberry trees. Verse 15. And it shall be when thou shalt hear a sound of going. Anybody know what a sound of going is? Yeah, it's real clear on this, huh? Maybe we could say the King James is a little blind to us on this. But we won't. And it shall be when thou shalt hear a sound of going in the tops of the mulberry trees, that then thou shalt go out to battle, for God has gone forth before thee to smite the host of the Philistines. David therefore did as God commanded him, and they smote the host of the Philistines from Gibeon even to Gezer. And the fame of David went out into all lands, and the Lord brought the fear of him unto all nations. Now, folks, what I'm here to tell you is you can always hear, win the fight when you hear the sound of going. So go hear the sound of going and win in every battle. Gee, that helps, right? Let me give this to you in some other translations. Knox's translation says, wait till you hear, the, uh, wait till thou hearest in the tops of the pear trees the sound of marching feet. Taylor's translation says, when you hear a sound like marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, that's your signal to attack. Bass's translation says, at the sound of footsteps in the tops of the trees, go out to the fight. Let me give it to you from a couple other translations. The Amplified Bible says, when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees or balsam trees. That's when you go out. The Message Bible says when you hear a sound like shuffling feet in the tops of the balsams. The Bible in basic English says, and at the sound of footsteps in the tops of the trees, go out to the fight, for God has gone out before you to overcome the army of the Philistines. Who walks in the tops of trees? 
There's one other translation I want to give this to you. And it's the Aramaic translation. Here's what it says. When you shall hear the sound of the angels coming to your assistance, then go out to battle for an angel is sent from the presence of God that he may render thy way prosperous. We used to sing a song. Well, we, I've heard a song a couple of times about the mulberry trees. The move is on. The move is on. I can hear the rustling in the mulberry trees. Well, I have no idea what they thought they were singing. Because this is talking about the working of angels. Now, the reason that I put this story together with the one over in 2 Kings chapter 6 is it says when the four lepers went at twilight, when it was starting to get dark, the, the Lord caused them to hear a sound that was at least equivalent to what they perceived to be four enemy armies. Who do you think that was? Well, apparently God works with sounds of angels to defeat the enemies. God told David, don't go head into them. Don't go straight at them this time. Go and wait till you have your reinforcements. And the angel armies delivered them. And he won a great, great victory. Great victory. Turn with me over to Psalm 91 real quick. Let me cover this and, and close with this. Psalm 91. Most Bible scholars... Um, believe, and I happen to agree with them, that uh, Psalm 91 was given to us by Moses after they crossed the Red Sea. It was a psalm to take the promised land, which was God's original intent before Israel rebelled against God and spent 40 years walking in the wilderness. We won't read the whole thing, but you'll, if you did read the whole thing, well, yeah, we are going to read the whole thing. Because it's literally God's insurance policy. It's your protection policy from God. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord. Now remember, if this is Moses saying this after God's delivered him from the hands of the Egyptians and defeated the, the superpower army of the earth without ever having to fire a shot, this is Moses' reply. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in him will I trust. Surely he will deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. That means epidemic or disease that consumes. He shall cover thee with with his feathers and under his wings shalt thou trust. His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. That means armor. Thou shalt not be afraid of the terror by night, nor for the arrow that flies by day. Here's a promise against terrorism, folks. Nor for the uh, nor for the pestilence, again, this is epidemic or, or disease, that walketh in darkness, nor for the destruction, sudden death or calamity, that wasteth at noonday. A thousand shall fall at thy side and ten thousand at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. Only with thine eyes shall be- thou behold and see the reward of the wicked. The reward of the wicked is when they saw the Egyptian army drown in the Red Sea. Because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the most high thy habitation, there shall no evil calamity. I'm sorry, evil means uh, disaster befall thee. Neither shall any plague or calamity come nigh thy dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. Folks, please understand he's saying the guarantee you have against all these pestilence, epidemics, calamities, sudden death, terrorism, and all this stuff is because the angels have been given charge over you. Keep that in mind. For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep, literally protect thee. 
in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Now, I got to tell you, folks, sudden death and calamity and terror that flies by, terror that comes by night and the error that comes by day, how does that compare with dashing your foot against a stone, stubbing your toe? He's saying angels take care of you in big stuff and little troubles too. He shall give his angels charge over thee to keep or protect thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Thou shalt tread upon the lion and the adder, the young lion and the dragon shalt thou trample under feet, because he has set his love upon me. Here's God speaking, first person of those who set their love upon him, those who trust in him. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore will I deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. Now, how is God saying he's going to do all that stuff? Primarily, these verses of Scripture and the promises therein are the angels working on your behalf. And notice it says he gives his angels charge over you. Now, folks, when we think of protection... Think of it like this. If you're a rich person, I mean super rich, the kind of rich that somebody would want to kidnap your kids and hold them for ransom, okay? Put yourself in that position for a minute. What would you do to protect your kids? I'd get them bodyguards, wouldn't you? At least for for certain events, certain times. What would you do with that bodyguard? Would that bodyguard be there to direct his life, to do everything for him? Is the bodyguard there to feed him? The bodyguard there to put him in bed at night, tuck him in? No. The bodyguard is there for one and only one thing, and that is when trouble arises, he takes charge. See, so many times people look at this where angels are concerned, and they think, well, we ought to see angels doing all, all kinds of stuff all the time. No. You're the one that's supposed to be doing stuff all the time. Now, they hearken unto the voice of God's word, which is you, and we just saw over in Luke chapter 16 that you can use your money to put the angels to work to provide an eternal home for you. But you're the one supposed to be doing the work. They take charge when trouble arises. They take charge when trouble arises. They step in. If somebody, if you're the rich person with the bodyguard for your son to protect him from being kidnapped or being harmed, if something happens, like we see in movies all the time and stuff like that, you know, where some a car will come and cut off the, the limousine or something like that, what do the bodyguards do? They spring into action. And if it's a good movie, they kill everybody in sight. That's pretty much the story of Israel with the angels. David says, We've got enemies. Shall we fight against them? God says, yep, I'll take care of them for you. How does he do that? He gives them angel power. The angels take charge. Over and over and over again, you see divine protection being carried out by the angels. Now, folks, I'm convinced a lot of this happens and we don't even know it. I know for a fact 
that there are times where I'm in my car and I'll get music playing in my car and get all revved up, you know, and wind up going a lot faster than I intended to go or whatever it is. And I'll, I'll start to do something. All of a sudden, I'll feel, it's almost like I feel a hand on my shoulder or something on my shoulder. And all of a sudden, everything is just calmed down. And I'll look and I'll see there was somebody I didn't recognize or somebody I didn't know that was there on the freeway. And if I had just gotten juiced up and, you know, gone with it, I do listen to music. I've got about four praise songs that I just play over and over and over again. There's about four good ones out there. There have been so many times that I've been aware of, you know, a little place, this little car I've got, it's a, a rocket ship disguised as an electric car. There have been so many times I've started to do something and I've just felt that I, I can't, I don't know how to describe it any other way. It's like it's something touches my shoulder. And as soon as that happens, I just calm down and slow down and stop what I'm doing. And I realize what I just was about to do was going to get me in a world of trouble. I'm convinced that the protection is there a lot of times when we never are aware. I wonder how many times the angels are shaking their heads saying they have no clue. They have no clue. If it weren't for me, he shall give his angels charge over thee. And they'll take care of you in big stuff to protect you from big things. But they bear you up so that you don't even dash your foot upon a stone. If we become sensitive to the things that God has provided for us, the deliverance that we have been provided, he'll keep you from making little mistakes. Now, I've got to tell you, folks, in my own personal life, and I don't don't live according to my experience, and I'm not preaching according to my experience, but the mistakes I've made in my life have been the ones, the biggest mistakes I've made have been the ones I got in a hurry to make. And if I just slow down, if I just wait, I'd be like David and inquire of the Lord rather than rushing off into doing something. Then I wouldn't have made some of the mistakes I've made. Saved myself a lot of money in some cases. Saved myself a lot of heartache in other cases. Thank God for the angels. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who shall be heirs of salvation? Well, next time we'll talk more about what the angels do. Show you more of their, the, what the Bible says that their job is. You'll see how that Jesus used the angels. A lot of times people just think of Jesus as being the son of God and he did everything because of who he was. He utilized the angels. We'll talk about that next time. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that your word is true. Thank you for the angels that you've given to us as servants because we are heirs of salvation. And, oh, Father, what a privilege it is to be heirs of salvation. Thank you, Father, that the angels protect us. They guard us. They bear us up in their wings. Not only in the big things to protect us from, Father, from sudden death and calamity and tragedies. But, Father, we thank you in these dangerous times, these perilous times that we live in. We thank you that we can trust the angels to preserve our lives, but also to direct us in the smallest affairs of life as we wait upon you. Thank you, Father, for the wonderful plan of redemption that we've entered into. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.